welcome to Historically Haunted, a podcast that takes a look at historical locations that are reportedly haunted. To understand the hauntings, one must first look at the history behind them, because history leaves shadows that people today can still see. Let's find out their stories together and learn some cool historical facts along the way. October, everyone, and welcome to Historically Haunted. I am your host, Ariel, and I am so excited to have you here. Today is episode two of my four-part Halloween series, and today we are talking about the hauntings found at Alcatraz Island in San Francisco. First up, I wanted to thank my Patreons. You guys really do help make this show possible so I can afford the monthly host fees as well as helping me upgrade to new equipment and pay for the rights to music and sound effects. I have some new Patreons that I would like to thank today and they are Tabor, Heather, Paul, and Ginger. Thank you all once again for your support. If anyone is interested in becoming a Patreon, you can check out my link down below in the show notes. For just a dollar a month, you can get access to bonus episodes that I make whenever I have extra time, which sadly right now hasn't been much extra time, but right now I am working on a few extra Halloween bonus episodes for you guys. I also post photos from the historical places that I talk about on my episodes and you will also get a thank you card and a logo sticker in the mail. A free way to help support the show is to leave me a review on the Apple Podcast app. Reviews help other people find the show when they are looking for a new paranormal podcast to try. Speaking of reviews, I have a few people to thank. Um, These are usernames, so they might sound a little different, and I also have a hard time reading them, but I'm going to give it my best. The first one comes from A. Zweddy, I think. Um, The next one is Rachel Lane 2701 and Snow Stark 1985. And the last one is Mara Dale 80. Thank you guys so much for leaving me such great reviews. Your kind words really do mean a lot to me. And I've been getting so many nice comments uh, on Instagram and Facebook and also with my reviews. So thank you all again. If anyone has ever done anything or even someone who's a casual listener of the show and just pop in every once in a while, thank you again so much. Actually, since I have started this podcast, as of today, total downloads of all time is 100 35,300. And since I just posted the Stanley Hotel two weeks ago, um, I have 1,600 downloads already on that episode alone. And I'm completely blown away by this. So again, thanks everyone for listening. One last thing to quickly talk about before I get started on this episode is October is officially Dyslexia Awareness Month. And if this is your first episode listening to my show, I have dyslexia. And dyslexia is a learning disability that affects one in five students or 15 to 20% of the whole population. And it is not something that can be cured and people are just born with it and there is really nothing you can do to prevent it. But there are steps that children and adults can make in their everyday to day lives that can really help you out. The main thing that I have run into all my life is people thinking that I'm really stupid because I can't spell, I can't read aloud very well, I also can't memorize math facts, and I also can't count back change. Besides getting bullied as a kid, a few times while I was working as an adult, I actually had customers make fun of me in front of everyone, all because that I had to use a calculator to know how much change to give back. 
And I even once had a person tell me to my face that if I could not function like a normal person, that I have no business working at all and I should not be around the fully functioning society. That actually happened to me when I was about 21 years old and I will think I will remember that until the day I die pretty much. And though I don't like harp on it and I'm not all sad about it, it was quite a verbal slap in the face. If you are struggling with dyslexia and have ever heard someone that small-minded tell you that you're not going to amount to anything, don't be discouraged. Many famous and super smart people have dyslexia. Actually, one of the most brilliant minds in history had it, Albert Einstein. Imagine somebody trying to call him stupid. I'm sure that would have went over really well. The list of famous and inspiring people who struggle with dyslexia is really long, but here are a few people that you might recognize. Leonardo da Vinci, Walt Disney, Jim Carrey, Cher, Kira Knightley, Princess Beatrice, Beatrice, Orlando Bloom, Whoopi Goldberg, George Washington, John F. Kennedy, John Legend, Steven Spielberg, Samuel Hayek, Muhammad Ali, and Henry Winkler. And that is a very short list, I assure you. Henry Winkler actually writes children's books called Hank Zipper, and the boy in the story Hank has dyslexia. And the book covers all the hard and embarrassing things that happen to dyslexic kids when they go through the age of middle school. In the end, the books always encourage other dyslexic children to just be themselves, and Hank always finds a unique way of around the problem, just like people with dyslexia have to do every single day. Hank Zipsters were also the first book in the United States to be published with dyslexia font. Dyslexia font was created with dyslexics in mind. The idea behind the font is to make it easier for people with dyslexia to read the page. A few e-reader companies are actually including the font as a choice when you go up to the top and you can choose what kind of font you like. They actually have dyslexia font right there. A lot of people without dyslexia I've found out like it as well, so that's kind of interesting and a tip if you have dyslexia and you like reading on your e-tablet, go up to the top of the screen and see if they have dyslexia font available for you to try. It is actually the font I'm using right now as I read off of my iPad and if you want to get the font for free, I will have a link down below so you can do that. I have it downloaded for pages on my Mac but you can also get a Windows edition so you can use it in Word document and it really does help me be able to read better than normal font does. This isn't a sponsored ad or anything, I just wanted to put it out there since it is Dyslexia Awareness Month, I thought that this would be a perfect perfect time to bring that up. So anyway, that was a short list of famous people who have dyslexia to try to encourage you if you have dyslexia. Don't worry and don't give up. Chase your dreams and don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. If you want to learn more about dyslexia, please go to www.dyslexiaaid.org and I have a link to that in the bottom of the show notes. Okay, that is everything I had to talk about before the episode, so let's get this Halloween episode started with our monstrous moment. For centuries, people have told stories of having run-ins with strange beasts in forests, monsters in the sea, and having encounters from beyond the stars. I call these Monstrous Moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's Monstrous Encounter. Today's Monstrous Moment is the death ship of Platte River. While this is technically not a monster, I thought this legend would fit right into the Halloween season. Legend has it that there is a ghost ship that will rise out of the fog on the North Platte River in the state of Wyoming. This ghost ship has been seen for over 100 years, and the legend began in 1862 when a man named Leon Weber was out trapping in the area. He was setting up traps near the river when he witnessed a strange, huge ball of mist that suddenly appeared on the water. As he watched, a large three-mast 
ship rose from the mist and proceeded down the river. As he continued to watch, he noticed that the ship's masts and sails were covered in ice. The ship's crew members were all on the deck, but they looked pale and were covered in frost. The whole crew was huddled around something laying on a canvas in the middle of the deck. When the ship became level with Weber, the crew stepped back to reveal a corpse of his beloved fiance. After he witnessed this, the fog covered the ship again and then it disappeared as if it had never been there. Terrified, he ran from the river. As it turns out, Weber's fiance died later that very day. Ever since this first encounter, the ship has been feared and many believe that this ship is a harbinger of doom and it will predict the death of a loved one to passers-by. In 1887, another man witnessed this strange ship, a cattleman by the name of Gene Wilson. Wilson saw the same strange ball of mist, the ice-covered ship, and when the crew stepped back from the center of the deck, he saw the body of his wife. She ended up dying the next day. In 1903, a man named Victor was falling trees on his property near the riverfront when he noticed a strange ball of mist coming down the river. He stopped to watch and witnessed the same large ship covered with ice appear. When the crew stepped back from the center, he saw the body of his close friend. All of these sightings scared the men so much that they ran away from the riverbed in a panic. There are other reported sightings of this ship traveling down the river, but some of the sightings are from a distance. People have claimed to look towards the river and see the top of the mass passing by, and once people run down to the river to investigate, it is gone. All of the alleged sightings of this ghost ship happened during the autumn months at different places along the river. If the legend of this ship is true, this sounds like one paranormal experience that no one would want to witness. Imagine Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay is pretty well known. The most notable period of its history is when it was used as a federal prison for the United States prison system. People are intrigued by the lives of the inmates and those who attempted an escape. Several Hollywood movies have been made about this prison, including Burt Lancaster in The Birdman of Alcatraz, Clint Eastwood in Escape from Alcatraz, and Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage in The Rock. If you would like to know more about the history of San Francisco, I did a separate episode about the city in episode 43. There is more to the story of Alcatraz than when it was used as a prison. This island was part of the lands owned by the Ohlone and the Coast Miwok people. The Native Americans used this island to gather food, especially bird eggs and sea life. They also used the island as a place of banishment for anyone breaking tribal law. They also believed that evil spirits and dark entities lived on the island and they named it Evil Island. And I will talk more about that later. The first ship sailed into San Francisco Bay on August 5, 1775. The San Carlos of Spain was captained by Juan Manuel de Ayala. His expedition created an early map of the bay, and Ayala named three large islands, Angel Island, Yerba Buena Island, and Alcatraces, meaning pelicans, and this island later became Alcatraz. Alcatraz was a barren island with very little to offer as far as adequate resources. It was a great place for pelicans and other birds, and that's how it got its name. 
The island was pretty much ignored until the United States added California to the Union in 1850. San Francisco Bay was also the largest harbor along the United States' west coast. Almost immediately, the military saw the need to protect the entrance to the bay so that ships from hostile countries could not enter. The original plan was to create a triangle of defense, a fort at Fort Point on the San Francisco side, one at Fort Lyme on the northern side, which is Marin County today, and a fort on Alcatraz. Alcatraz is the island nearest the entrance, and Alcatraz was seen as a backup for Fort Point in Fort Lyme. However, Fort Lyme was never built because the U.S. military and the owner of the land could not reach an agreement on the purchase price, so Alcatraz became the main part of defending the bay. Construction began on Fort Alcatraz in 1853. Steep walls were constructed around the island by blasting rock and laying bricks and stone. Eleven cannons were installed in 1854. At the top of the island was the first lighthouse ever to be built in California. A citadel was built near the lighthouse and was meant to be the last place of defense. It was also made of strong brick walls with rifle slits in the windows. The two upper stories had living quarters for the soldiers. The basement contained the kitchens, dining halls, and storage places for food, water, and ammunition. There wasn't a source of fresh water on the island, so it had to be brought out from the mainland. The citadel held 100 men during the normal times, but if under attack, it could hold over 200. Because of the high walls of the fort, the only way to get onto the fort was from the dock. Between the dock and the citadel was a guardhouse equipped with the howitzer pointing toward the dock. The walls also had rifle slits for attacks at close range. The basement of the guardhouse also doubled as a jail. Fort Alcatraz opened in December of 1859. The fort quickly began using the jail located in the basement of the guardhouse to hold soldiers who had committed crimes. Soon, other army outposts began to send their most hardened criminals to Alcatraz because the island's location made the chance of escapes very slim. The water surrounding the island is extremely cold, and there are swift currents in the bay. Work continued on Alcatraz until it had a total of 111 sea cannons placed around its walls. It turns out that Alcatraz's most critical military period was during the Civil War. The main support California soldiers gave to the Union Army was to protect trade routes and steamerships sailing out of the two largest harbors, San Francisco and San Diego. Shortly after the war broke out, rumors began to spread about Southern sympathizers plotting to take control of San Francisco and the gold coming out of the Sierra foothills. Steamer ships carried an average of one to two million dollars worth of gold from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. It is estimated that California sent 46 million dollars in gold so the Union could buy arms, ammunition, food, and clothing for its over one million soldiers. The first real threat to San Francisco occurred in March of 1863 when a group of loyal Confederates planned to use an armed schooner, the J.M. Chapman, to capture a steamship. With that steamship, the plan was to block the harbor and cut off the shipments of gold to D.C. The plan was sabotaged by the Chapman's own captain. While drinking in a tavern, he bragged about the plan super loud for everyone to hear. The very night the ship was ready to set sail, the U.S. Navy was able to seize it and arrest the crew. The Chapman was towed to Alcatraz and searched, and the Navy discovered cannons, ammunition, other supplies, and 15 men hiding in the ship. I think the moral of that story is no matter what you're planning, whether it be world domination or a small bank heist, maybe don't brag about it in a bar for everyone to hear. The three leaders of the plot were arrested as traitors and put in the jail in the basement of the guardhouse while the investigation was conducted. There was a quick trial and they were convicted of treason. They were sentenced to 10 years in prison but were later pardoned by President Lincoln. Following the Civil War, 
more buildings were added to increase the number of military prisoners that could be kept at Alcatraz. During the Spanish-American War in 1898, more buildings were added. In 1902, 461 prisoners were being held at the prison. Improvements in weaponry reduced the need for the island to be an armed fort, so in 1907, Alcatraz was renamed Pacific Branch U.S. Military Prison. A new cell house was completed in 1912. It had 600 single cells, with each one having its own toilet. The cell house was built on top of the old citadel, and this building was later nicknamed The Rock. The cannons were removed, and new workshops in military housing were built. During the Great Depression, the Army decided to close the prison due to major budget cuts. In early 1934, the prison was transferred to the Justice Department. Alcatraz became a penitentiary for the most hardcore inmates. Alcatraz was the United States' top maximum security prison from 1934 until 1963. The prison was divided into four four cell blocks three tiers high. A block was rarely used. Its purpose was to hold inmates who didn't require solitary confinement but needed to be separated from the rest of the inmates for a short time. A block was mostly used for storage. B and C blocks held 336 cells. Each inmate had his own cell. At first, there were 348 cells, but 12 were replaced by a staircase built at the end of each cell block. Each cell was five feet wide and nine feet long, with one bed, a sink with cold running water, a toilet, two shelves, and a small writing desk. Three of the walls were solid concrete. The front was enclosed with steel bars. D-Block had 36 segregation cells and six solitary confinement cells. Prisoners who broke the rules were placed here. They had to stay in their cells for 24 hours a day, and they got one visit to the recreation yard per week. If a prisoner committed a violent act or repeatedly broke the rules, he would be put in one of the six dark cells. An outer solid steel door was closed, leaving the inmate in complete darkness. Prisoners had four basic rights, food, clothing, shelter, and medical care. Everything else had to be earned. Privileges included visits from family, use of the prison library, and activities like monthly movies, playing instruments, and painting. Also, if a prisoner showed that he could follow the rules and no longer was seen as a threat, he could be transferred to another federal prison to complete his sentence. It took about five years for prisoners to prove that they had conformed to what they called prison life. On average, prisoners stayed at Alcatraz for eight years. Alcatraz housed history's worst of the worst criminals, and conditions at the prison were harsh and punishments were often cruel. Some famous criminals from the Depression era were sent to Alcatraz. One was big Chicago crime boss Al Capone. He controlled a variety of illegal businesses like gambling houses, prostitution, and bootlegging. People also believe that Capone ordered the hit on the rival Moran gang known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Capone was convicted on October 17, 1931 for tax evasion. He was sentenced to 11 years in prison and sent to Atlanta, Georgia, but he was able to have a lot of power and influence over the guards and even the warden. Apparently, he had a lot of cash hidden in his cell, and he tipped guards so that they would give him special things that the other prisoners didn't get. You can find a picture of his cell on Google, and I will also post it in the Patreon page as well, but when you look at the photo, you can see what he got, and it's really nice stuff. He had a fancy writer's desk, two lamps, an upholstered wingback chair, a radio console, and what looks like a plush blanket on his bed. Not surprisingly, prison authorities decided that Capone needed stronger reform. He was transferred to Alcatraz with the first group of inmates on October 22, 1934. Of course, he soon began trying to use his influence and bribes to get special treatment. This didn't go over so well with Warden Johnston, and Capone was quickly put in his place and was treated like everyone else. 
Capone served four and a half years at Alcatraz. While he was there, he played the banjo in a band called the Rock Islanders. He was transferred to Terminal Island Prison in Southern California on January 6, 1939, and he was released in November of that year. Another famous inmate was bank robber and kidnapper Machine Gun Kelly. Kelly, his wife, and other members of his gang were convicted of kidnapping an oil tycoon the summer of 1933. Kelly was first sent to prison at Leavenworth, Kansas, and his wife was sent to a prison in Cincinnati, Ohio. Kelly was very cocky toward the prison guards, and he would brag that he was going to escape from the prison and then break his wife out of prison. His threats were taken seriously, so he was sent to Alcatraz on August of 1934. His stay at Alcatraz was uneventful, but he continued to brag. Mostly, he told big stories of crimes that he never actually committed. He went back to Leavenworth in 1951, and he died in prison on his 59th birthday. Another notorious prisoner to stay at Alcatraz was Robert Stroud, and his nickname was The Birdman. Contrary to the movies, he never actually raised any canaries while on Alcatraz. This took place at Leavenworth Prison. While Stroud was at Leavenworth, he was a violent prisoner, so he had to spend many years in the segregation unit. He had a strong interest in canaries and was allowed to breed and study them in two cells connected to his. He wrote two books about the birds, but he got in trouble when guards discovered that he was using some of his scientific equipment to make a still. After this discovery, Stroud was transferred to Alcatraz's D-Block in 1942. He spent six years in segregation and 11 years in the prison hospital. Then he was sent to the medical center for federal prisoners in Springfield, Missouri in 1959. He died later on November 21, 1963. Alcatraz is not just famous for its notorious inmates, but it is also famous for many attempted escapes. Some prisoners didn't want to wait for their transfer or wait till the end of their sentences. Instead, a total of 36 men tried to escape the rock. The official statement is that no one ever successfully escaped from Alcatraz. However, five prisoners are listed as missing and presumed drowned. In all, there were 14 escape attempts. Some were pretty basic. The first attempt was by Joe Bowers on April 27, 1936. He was tasked to burn trash near the edge of the island and decided to try to climb the chain-link fence near the edge. He refused to get down and was shot by a guard in the West Tower. He fell 50 to 100 feet to the rocks below and died from his injuries. Two other prisoners decided to try to escape on December 16, 1937. During a bad winter storm, they spent many days filing through flat iron bars on the window in the shop building. They climbed through the window and disappeared into the bay. Their bodies were never found, but it is believed that they were carried out to sea by strong currents and later drowned. The tenth and possibly most famous attempt occurred between May 2nd and May 4th, 1946. It is called the Battle of Alcatraz or the Alcatraz Blastout. The mastermind was Bernard Paul Coy, a convicted bank robber. He spent many months carefully paying attention to the patterns of several guards. He and five accomplices planned to overpower the cell house guards, gain control of weapons, then take control of the whole cell house. They also planned to use the guards' keys to get out to the recreation yard and then escape the island. The escape started as planned a bit before 2.30 in the afternoon on May 2nd. The cell house was pretty much empty because most prisoners were working at different jobs around the island. Coy's job was to sweep the floors of the main cell house. One of the guards patrolling the West Gun Gallery on the third level went about his normal rounds. 
After he left the gun gallery, Coy climbed the bars up to the top of the gun gallery. One accomplice, Joseph Kretzer, watched from below. Coy used a spreading tool that he had created and he prized the bars open about 10 inches. He squeezed through with the help of axle grease on his body and eating very little food for several days earlier. When the guard named Birch came back, he was ambushed by Coy and was knocked out. Coy then lowered firearms and riot clubs to Kretzer. They were able to capture nine unarmed guards and lock them in two empty cells. They then got a set of keys from one of the guards, Officer Miller. Miller caught on quickly to their plan and was able to remove the key to the rec yard and tossed it in the toilet before the prisoners noticed. After locking the guards in the cell, Corey and Kretzer released three more accomplices. Clarence Carnes, the youngest convict ever sent to Alcatraz, Sam Shockley, and Marin Thompson. The escapees realized that they could not get into the recreation yard and that they were trapped. They became agitated and angry. Kretzer, egged on by Shockley and Thompson, shot into one of the cells at the officers. One of the officers was sadly killed. Shockley and Thompson went back to their cells deciding to give up. The others chose to fight it out. Other guards on the island quickly became aware of an attempted breakout and sirens began to wail and they were heard on the mainland. This alerted the U.S. Coast Guard and Marines. They rushed out to help with weapons and demolition experts. All off-duty guards were brought in to help as well. First, a strike team of guards went in through the West Gun Gallery to try to overpower the inmates. However, the gunfire was too much for them and one guard was killed. Later that night, another strike team went in, but they also took on a lot of gunfire and couldn't get into the main building. The next day, the Marines became involved. They shot into the windows using mortars and tear gas. They even drilled holes into the ceiling and lowered hand grenades down on wires, then detonated them. This entire time, there were other inmates who had been locked in their cells. They hid under their mattresses, trying not to get hit by all the gunfire and shrapnel. Finally, Robert Stroud, a.k.a. the Birdman, yelled out at the guards and got them and the military to stop shooting. Corey, Kretzer, and Hubert were all found dead. In the end, two prison guards were killed, 14 guards and one inmate were injured. Thompson and Shockley were both executed in the nearby San Quentin's gas chamber for their part in the shooting of one of the guards. Carnes had 99 years added to his sentence. The 13th escape attempt was made famous by Clint Eastwood's 1973 movie Escape from Alcatraz. The true story sounds like it came from a novel or a Hollywood script rather than real life. On June 11, 1962, Frank Morris and brothers John and Clarence Anglin escaped from their cells and were never heard from again. The FBI had to keep the case open for 17 years. Here is what they learned from their investigation. The Great Escape from Alcatraz took months of planning and preparation. Frank Morris is credited with being the mastermind. Prison officials noted that he had a superior intelligence. Morris and the Anglin brothers had spent most of their adult lives in the prison system. All three were sent to Alcatraz due to making several escape attempts at other federal prisons. Another inmate, Alan West, was probably involved in the planning of the escape, but he was left behind. In December 1961, West found several old saw blades while cleaning one of the utility corridors. Behind the cells was a long corridor that allowed work to be done on water pipes when necessary. There was a steel door at both ends of each utility corridor and they were left unguarded. The men used basic hand tools to dig around the ventilator grill in their cells. They could then remove the entire section of wall and slip through into the utility corridor. This took several months to complete. They hid their work from the guards using towels, suitcases, and instrument cases, anything they had. After getting into the utility corridor, the men were able to climb up the pipes and reach the roof about 30 feet high. 
In order to carry out other parts of their plan, they made a workshop up in the rafters. At night, between 5.30 and 9 o'clock, the prisoners took turns keeping watch and working in the workshop. They used over 50 stolen raincoats to make life preservers and a 6 feet by 14 feet rubber raft. They made wooden paddles and turned an accordion-type instrument into a device that would inflate the raft and life preservers. They also made fake heads out of plaster, flesh-colored paint, and real human hair that they stole from the barbershop. They also removed the rivets that held the air vent in place on the roof. On June 11, 1962, the men were ready to escape. West's ventilator grill could not be completely removed, so he couldn't go with them. After lights out at 9.30, Morris brought down the fake heads and the men placed them in their cots. Morris and the Anglin brothers climbed up the pipes, grabbed their raft and life preservers, then went onto the roof through the air vent. It is believed that they went 100 feet across the roof and climbed down the 50 feet of piping and landed near the showers. The plan was to use the raft to go to Angel Island. They would then rest there for a while and then swim to Marin County. From there, they would steal a car, rob a clothing store, and go their separate ways. After the breakout was discovered, West became an informant and told the guards and the FBI the whole plan. However, the group of men were never heard from again. Now, was their escape successful? Well, there are debates on both sides. Evidence for an unsuccessful attempt include the following. There were no reports of a car being stolen or any stores being broken into within 12 days after the escape. The men did not have any friends or family that had the money to come up to San Francisco to help them get away. Many drowning victims' bodies are never recovered from the bay. The water temperatures are in the 50s and a person can only survive about 20 minutes in such frigid water. Personal items were found floating in the bay. There was a waterproof packet containing photos and letters belonging to one of the Anglin brothers. The following day, a life preserver was found almost four miles west of the Golden Gate Bridge. And finally, a Norwegian freighter reported seeing a body floating 20 miles northwest of the Golden Gate Bridge on July 17, 1962. This report wasn't made, however, until October. The crew said that the body was clothed in denim trousers and it looked like prison uniforms. Others claimed that since the bodies were never found, they must have successfully escaped. Some people have successfully swam to Alcatraz and to Angel Island, but these people had trained for the swim. After keeping the case open until December 31, 1979, the FBI turned the case over to the U.S. Marshals Service. The final escape attempt was on December 16, 1962. Two inmates bent the bars of a kitchen window, climbed out, and went down to the water. One of the inmates, Darrell Parker, didn't make it too far and was found on some rocks close to Alcatraz. John Scott tried to swim to San Francisco, but almost got pulled out to sea. Some teenagers found him on the rocks near Fort Point underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, suffering from hypothermia. The prison was closed in 1963 because the cost of operations were much higher than any other federal prison. It also needed improvements and the cost would be between three and five million dollars. Alcatraz was left abandoned for several years. In November of 1969, a group of Native Americans occupied the island, wanting to claim the island and create a cultural center and education campus. Richard Oakes was the leader of the group that they named Indians of All Tribes. The protest began to fall apart a few months later when non-Native Americans began to live on the island. Oakes's 13-year-old stepdaughter tragically fell three floors down one of the stairwells and died. After this, Oakes left the island and the two groups began competing for leadership of the island. The occupation ended on June 11, 1971 when President Nixon approved the removal of the people of Alcatraz. 
Federal marshals and FBI agents came to the island and found only 15 people remaining. Though the protests ended, the occupation of Alcatraz was successful in bringing public attention to the needs of Native Americans. Alcatraz became part of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area in 1972. It opened to the public as a historical landmark in 1973. To tour Alcatraz, you take a ferry ride from Pier 33 in San Francisco. Included in the ferry ticket is an audio tour of the Alcatraz cell house. It tells about the prison era from 1934 until 1963. There is also a lot of exhibits throughout the cell house and the island. If you dare, night tours are also available. These tours are unique and they include the audio tour of the cell house as well as additional stories and other activities. While Alcatraz is famous for its historical tours, it is also famous for its notorious paranormal activity. The island had been used for many different purposes before it was ever a high security prison, so it's not hard to see why there are so many different types of ghosts lingering around on the fog-covered rock. Now that we've taken the historical tour, let's go back and take a haunted tour of the island. And while we are walking down those dark corridors, keep an eye over your shoulder because you never know who or what might creep up on you. I have been to Alcatraz once before. I went on a class trip back in the fifth grade. The plan was for me to go back to Alcatraz before I made this episode, but you know, COVID happened, so I never ended up making the trip. I don't remember a lot from my trip, but I do remember the feeling of being on the island, and it is really creepy, not just because of the rumors of it being haunted, no, but because of how alone you feel. It is really weird to be on an island looking back at the shoreline, knowing that your only way back is by boat. When I did my History of San Francisco episode last month, I talked about the energy that the city of San Francisco has and how exciting it can be to enjoy a full day in the city. Well, when you go out to this island, you feel a really big shift. It feels like you can sense all of that fun energy on the shore, but you can't quite feel all of that energy in its full strength while you're out on the island. All you can hear is muffled sounds of the city, harsh waves on the rocks, and the sound of foghorns and pelicans and seagulls. Claustrophobic is the best way I can describe it, and it definitely feels like you've entered another dimension and you are looking back into the one you've just left. I can't imagine what that must have felt like for the inmates to know that they were coming here, they could never leave, and also never get off the island safely. To see life in the distance but not be able to reach it must be a strange feeling. Even for the prisoners who deserve to be at Alcatraz, I still can't imagine what that would have felt like and what that would do to a person's brain. I understand that all prisons must feel like that to an extent, but being on a small secluded island and only be able to see a thriving city must amplify that trapped feeling even more. As we talked a little bit about in the history, before Alcatraz got its official name from the Spanish, the local Native American tribe had a different name for the island. The Miwok Indians had a bad feeling about the island from the beginning and they named it Evil Island because they believed that dark energy and malicious spirits lived on the island. They refused to stay on the island for a long period of time 
and left it mostly unhabited. However, when warranted, they did use the island for severe punishment. For example, if someone went against tribal law, they would leave that person on the island for an amount of time or even for lifetime banishment. It seems like even before the island was used as an official prison, something drew people's attention to wanting to use the rock as a place for punishment. After Alcatraz officially became a fort, the strange dark energy seemed to intensify. Men reported seeing shadow figures walking around the fort's grounds, hearing screams, wailing, crying, whispers, and footsteps. These strange happenings intensified yet again after the prison was constructed. The most famous legend from the prison comes to us from cell 14 in D-Block. D-Block had 30 six segregation cells and six solitary confinement cells. In the 1940s, an inmate died in cell 14 in D-Block. The guards found him strangled to death on the floor of his cell. The legend states that the night before he was found, the guards heard him screaming to be let out of his cell because he was seeing a creature with glowing red eyes and it was trying to kill him. Apparently, the guards just thought he was having a mental breakdown and did not bother to check on him. Eventually, he fell silent. When morning bed checks came around, an officer found him dead in his cell. When they opened the door to take a closer look, they found scratches on his face, and the coroner determined that the strangulation was not self-inflicted. So the question remains, was there actually something evil in his cell with glowing red eyes that did kill this man? Now, I call this a legend because I couldn't find any real evidence about the inmate screaming about glowing red eyes in his cell, but then again, I don't know if guards would have put that in the report, especially back in the 1940s. I also know that there was a lot of corruption in the prison systems, especially back then, so if the person in cell 14 was killed by someone else, it could have easily been covered up. Whether this legend is true or not, weird things do happen in and around cell 14. People who have gone into cell 14 to investigate have reported the feeling of being dizzy, drained, sudden bouts of vertigo, and some have even become sick. Strange EVPs have also been captured inside of the cell. The glowing red eyes are still said to be seen inside cell 14. Another strange claim was that after the inmate's death, the guards would lie up the prisoners to do bed checks or move them to another location. When the guards would do their head count, they would find an extra person standing in line. The surprised guard and prisoners around would watch as the apparition faded away in front of them. Another interesting thing about this legend that does seem to match what people claim to see in many parts of the prison is the glowing red eyes. Many tour guides and people on tours have claimed to see glowing red eyes watching them from dark hallways and cells. When they are seen, many people People say that they experience a sinking feeling in the pit of their stomach and the feeling of dread washes over them. Sometimes people who have seen these glowing red eyes have said that they are attached to a black misty outline of something large. This entity is often called the thing by staff members who work on the island. Some think that this entity is one of the evil spirits that the Miwok Indians were afraid of. The prison's old infirmary is also a hotspot for paranormal activity. Workers have heard voices, yelling, screaming, and even seen shadow figures dart around the hallways and into empty rooms. Some have also reported the feeling of negative energy while investigating the space. As you can imagine, many paranormal investigators have been to the island, including ghost hunters and ghost adventures. They both caught some creepy EVPs and spirit box sessions in this area and near the cell blocks. There are many reports of full-bodied apparitions both inside and outside of the prison, along with the sound of a disembodied crowd in the mess hall as if prisoners are still sitting there eating dinner. 
When tour groups go to check out the sound, it stops as soon as they enter the empty room. One ghost story claimed that during the 1940s, Warden Johnston was having a Christmas party at his home. Today, his home is nothing more than a burned out shell of his former home. But at his Christmas party in the 40s, a few of the guards started telling a group about a ghostly encounter they had all witnessed. The men claimed that they were hanging out in the guards break room when suddenly an apparition of a man in a gray confederate uniform, complete with floppy brimmed cap and mutton chop sideburns appeared in front of them. This made all the men jump as they stared at this sudden figure. They claimed that the room then turned extremely cold and the fire in their stove went out with a gush of cold wind. Once the fire went out, the apparition vanished. This is not the only time apparitions of men in Civil War uniforms have been seen on the island. While the prison was open, guards said that sometimes on foggy nights, they would see apparitions of Union soldiers marching across the grounds only to disappear into the mist. Confederate soldiers have also been seen inside and outside of the prison. Guards also reported hearing the sound of phantom cannon fire and muskets. There are many notable apparitions that have been seen on the island besides the Confederate and Union soldiers. Guards and even today's tour guides have reported seeing the apparition of a young Native American man walking around the grounds of the island. There are a lot of apparitions that have been seen inside the main prison itself. The ghost of a prisoner known as the Butcher likes to hang around C Block. He was killed in the laundry room in the 1940s, but ever since his death, his ghost has been seen in the area, and he is often blamed for the sound of phantom footsteps that walk restlessly around C-Block. Al Capone was one of the most notorious prisoners to come to Alcatraz. While Capone did not pass away here, his presence seemed to have left its mark on the prison. Capone would often play his banjo inside of the empty shower room while the prisoners were out in the yard getting exercise. He did this because he worried about getting jumped while he was practicing. After he left the prison and later passed away, guards and prisoners alike started to hear the sound of banjo music coming from the shower room. Even people who go on tours today have claimed to hear the haunting echo of banjo music. Another strange claim I ran across from when the prison was still in operation was that guards reported phantom smoke coming from the empty laundry room at night. The prison guards would smell smoke and even see it coming from the laundry room. Thinking it was a real fire, they would run into the room with water buckets and fire extinguishers in hand. Once they entered the room, the smoke would slowly disappear as if it had never happened. Still to this day, there has never been any explanation for this, but it was reported to have happened many times over the prison's operation. While you're walking around Alcatraz, don't discredit the hauntings found at A and B Block. Even C Block is super haunted besides just having an apparition. Tour groups and guides and even state park workers have reported hearing whispers, whistles, crying, screams, moaning, shouts, rattling of chains, footsteps, voices from empty cells, strange smells, and sudden temperature drops have also been reported, along with the sound of loud tapping and banging on empty cell doors. Another thing that happens often is cell doors open and close on their own, as well as strange light anomalies. Shadow figures and full-bodied apparitions have been seen both inside cells and walking above tour groups on the catwalks. Some have even claimed to see an apparition of a guard passing back and forth on the upper catwalk as though he is still going about his duties. Strange light anomalies have been seen both with the naked eye and in photographs. Alcatraz is a unique and creepy place and judging by the research I did, it always has been. I know that when I went, the whole place felt off and that was way before I was even into ghosts or knew much about them. 
The island really does have a strange vibe, and apparently it was like that long before it became a prison. Judging by the paranormal claims, if you ever go to Alcatraz, you might just have a paranormal experience. The only question left is, are you brave enough to check out this abandoned prison? Thank you all so much for joining me today as we checked out the haunted history of Alcatraz Island. I had so much fun doing the research for this and I hope you guys enjoyed it too. The next episode in my Halloween series is going to be about the Winchester Mystery House and that'll come out in about a week or two from now. And then the day before Halloween, I will have the Bell Witch Cave available for the Halloween episode. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and I have links to all of those pages down below along with my Patreon page for you guys to check out. Thanks again so much for listening to this episode and I cannot wait to be back here with another Halloween episode. Until then, stay healthy and safe and happy Halloween!